1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 54 through 59.
0: Isaiah is articulate. Verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I love that. He that inhabiteth eternity. Isaiah here is actually highlighting for us an error in our mathematics. You and I tend to think of timelines. We think of time as linear and absolute. We make a timeline in school, from left to right, a birth to a death, a a beginning to an end. Make a timeline. Because we do that, and that's understandable, but because we do that, we assume that eternity is simply a line that's infinitely long. Starts at infinity on the left and goes to infinity on the right, and we speak of eternity That's the way we visualize it. Whether we realize it or not, we're making an error. Because we visualize God as simply someone who has lots of time. We don't realize that that's a contradiction of modern physics. In modern physics, we know that time is a physical property, just like mass and acceleration. Tell me the mass and the gravity and so forth, and you can construct a time domain. Change the mass, the gravity, acceleration, and you change the time. Time can dilate. Time is not linear or absolute. We know that, and that's what Einstein's general theory is all about. Special theory has to do with energy and mass, but the general theory, primary implication for us philosophically is it recognizes that time dilates. Time is a physical property. Talk about God as being freed from the constraints of mass in the first place. He doesn't have lots of time. He's outside the dimensionality of time altogether. We've talked a little bit of that. That's all by way of review. Okay. Here is what Isaiah says the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity you see that makes sense to us if we understand that being eternal is to be outside time altogether he's in a total di- totally different dimensionality and we know from the new testament we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is boy that's sophisticated math that's a hyperspace discussion we will see him because we are in his dimensionality that's wild Thus saith the high and the lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place with him also who is of a contrite or crushed and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever. Neither will I always be angry. For the spiritual fail before me and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness, Was I angry and smote him? I hid myself and was angry and went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of his lips, peace, peace, or more precisely, perfect peace, to him that is far off, to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked... Are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. The last few couple of verses are very familiar to us because they echo similar phrases elsewhere. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Isaiah has used that as a refrain earlier. I think it was chapter 48. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Boy, is that a graphic! Use a phrase. Isaiah is the most articulate of the writers of the Old Testament. He has the largest vocabulary of anybody that writes. But he sure uses every rhetorical device that we know of. And there's, you know, some 50 or 100 different techniques in rhetoric. And almost all of them are found in Isaiah. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Boy, is that descriptive. The wicked are not only in trouble, they create trouble all the time. Their waters cast up mire and dirt. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Look around sounds like modern media. The wicked are like the troubled sea. This phrase is also used by Jude in verse 13 of Jude, but it also echoes many passages. The wicked are like the troubled sea. The idea that the Gentile world at large is depicted poetically in the scripture as the sea. Daniel chapter 7, he sees these four beasts rise up out of the sea. Revelation 13, the beast rises up out of the sea. Another one rises out of the earth and and you can dig into that when you, when you do your revelation study. Okay. Well, we're on a roll. Let's keep moving. Chapter 58. Groan, it actually says, but cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. That is all the New Testament guy is looking at the hard here. And show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. He's going to start talking about fasting, but it's false fasting. So pay attention. Yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me ordinances of justice, and they take delight in approaching God. Why have ye fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Why have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife, and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. He shall not fast as ye do this day. To make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? See what he's saying? We could spend a lot of time studying fasting. Fasting is, with one exception, always voluntary, even in Israel. Fasting was a voluntary move, not something that was imposed, with the exception of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was a compulsory fast. But the idea of the fast was to do it unto the Lord, not unto those around you. If you're going to fast, you do it in secret. It's, your, it's between you and the Lord. You don't put on airs and let all your friends know how spiritual you are because, well, I'm on a fast right now. You know. That's, really, that's what he's really saying here. See, if you if you're putting on airs, you already got your reward. It's not a fast. You got to see, that's not that's not what I mean by fast. Now, incidentally, the question is probably you mind, gee, what about New Testament? Do we fast in New Testament? Yes, Jesus said so. Is it required? No. But is it is it ordained? Yes. And if you are going to fast, I encourage you to get there's some plenty of good books around. Uh, God's Chosen Fast is, is one of those standard little paperbacks you can get, and I'm sure any Christian bookstore. There's several good books on fasting. If you're going to fast, do a little homework because it's there's some medical things you should be aware of. But it's easy. And if you go on an extended fast, your first three days are the only ordeal you have. First three days, you start to feel Well, after the third day, it's gone. It's easy for a while, for, you know, some number of weeks. So there's a lot of interesting things about fasting, and, and there are many, many people. Doctors are divided. Some don't like it. Many do. They feel it's a very, very healthy thing to do, This shutting your system down and giving it a rest. But do it with knowledge. Do it by doing some reading and, and, and get some counsel on it so you don't mess yourself up. I was on a fast a few years ago, I was going through some problems I went through, I went on a fast and read the books and, and I found, I was, I was startled because even the first three days were no effort and, uh, and I went several weeks and then uh, Kim Lindsey, housewife, wife says, uh, how long have you been on Chuck? I said about 19 to days and uh, she says, uh, well don't eat anything. I said well I didn't plan to, the book says, said, but you realize that uh, Caruso and Maria Lanza and others killed themselves by eating a normal meal after a fast. By not coming off the fast properly. That got my attention. <laughs> no, I actually, had read it. If you go on a fast, getting going on it and coming off it is very simple, but it needs to be a procedure to follow, so you don't do something dumb. I, I did do something dumb. About I was in the fast uh, more than a week, I guess, and and my daughter said, gee, Dad, make sure you take vitamins. And it didn't dawn on me you don't take anything because your system shut down. I stupidly popped a vitamin pill without thinking, and boy, did I feel awful. The reason I'm going through all this only follow directions. Get a little book on fasting if you're going to do this sort of thing. Pray about it. Make sure it's of the Lord, not of the flesh. But um, fasting is not inappropriate for the New Testament believer. But it should be done with proper insight and background. But anyway, getting back to this, uh, God is highlighting here that they're not fasting properly. Verse 6, is this: "'Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke?' See, God's saying, I'm not saying you're fast, I'm saying you're doing my work, which this is the fast I've chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke. There's another thought behind this also, by the way, do you realize that each one of those verbs is a freeing, not a confining verb? The exciting thing you and I enjoy is our freedom in Christ, not our restrictions. It's amazing how many denominations have missed the point. They go for the form, not the substance. The substance of Jesus Christ is your freedom in Christ. Your deliverance from the bondage of things that would injure you. The law that God gave was not to confine. It was to protect you from that which would be harmful. Very important to understand that. God's desire in your life is for you to be freed from those things that injure you. To loose the bands of wickedness. Drugs, alcohol, smoking, uh, luxuries of certain kinds are all encumbering, not freeing. To undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke. That's what God is all about, allowing you to really be free and not entangled by those things that would bind, oppress, addict and encumber you. He goes on, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? And when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Someone said today that uh, the the important spiritual gift is the spiritual gift of inconvenience. That's, I think, a spiritual gift available to us all, isn't it? Is it convenient? Is it inconvenient to help somebody? Joe would help but He wasn't on my side of the street. It wasn't awkward for me to turn around and do it. No. Anyway. Verse 8. Then shall thy light break forth like the morning, and then thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy rear guard. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke and putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness shall be like noonday. The Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in draught, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. <laughs> it echoes Jeremiah thirty one twelve, doesn't it? Remember the watered garden? We sing that chorus all the time. Jeremiah wrote about a century later. He must have borrowed that idea from Isaiah 58:11.
1: here.
0: I'm kidding, of course. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from thy doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and shall call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, Honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And boy, that's the secret, isn't it? To forego our will and do his. The great discovery is to discover that the real joy in life is doing his will, not pursuing our own schemes. Someone told me that what, life, life is that which happens while you make other plans. Huh? Delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father. And the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Now, have you ever felt that way? That God can't quite accomplish what you had in mind? Your God a little too small? Gee, he doesn't hear me. Really? I know why he doesn't hear you. If you don't think he hears you, you're probably right. And the reason he doesn't is because of verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None call for justice nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Let's remember that. When you're discussing God with somebody, the issue isn't apologetics. Not that I'm knocking apologetics. It's important that you have a reason for the hope that is within you. But that isn't the issue. You see, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. The issue is one of accountability for sin. That's the real issue. None call for justice nor any plea for truth. They trust in vanity. This is an interesting phrase. Trust in vanity doesn't maybe communicate to you. The word for vanity in the Hebrew is chaos. Or we would call it randomness. Or the technical among you, the engineers among you, would call it entropy. None call for justice nor any plea for truth. They trust in randomness. Boy, if there's anything in Isaiah that describes the religion of today, that's it. See, we don't worship idols that are bronze. We don't worship uh, Baal or Moloch. We've invented a more insulting God to offend the living God with. We ascribe the miracle of our creation to random chance. You see, evolution, the whole biogenesis idea is what? Saying, it all just happened. See, that's more insulting, in a sense, than to ascribe it to some sentient being. You could probably say, gee, I think Satan did it, and insult God less. Because at least you're ascribing it to some sentient being. No, 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 we found a better way to insult God. We say, it just happened. Couldn't have been prevented. I mean, you know. And yet that's the official doctrine of most of our schools. That's the official doctrine of our society, evolution. It's scientifically unsound, disprovable around every turn, and yet our modern culture clings to it. They trust in entropy. They trust in randomness, or an equivalent term, chaos. Here translated, vanity, emptiness. And speak lies. That's what offends me about the evolution thing. It's not being misinformed. They're deliberate lies. There's fraud perpetrated in the textbooks. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave uh, the spider's web. He that eateth their eggs dieth, and he that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. The act of violence is in their hands. A couple problems with this. The adder doesn't lay eggs. Some snakes do, some don't. The cockatrices not sometimes... Anyway, there's some doubt about that. The real point is, what's he talking about here? Are we talking about the seed of the serpent? In whatever form, huh? I'll let you run with that, starting with Genesis 3.15 onwards. Jesus Christ talked about their fatherhood when they talked about his being an illegitimate son of Joseph in John 8. He says, I'll explain to you about your parentage. <laughs> your father was Satan. John 8, it's fabulous little, great. The interesting display of tactful dialogue between the Pharisees and our Lord. And we the spider's web. See, it's not like silkworms can yield garments. We call it silk, you know. But the spider's web, not so. It's really just a trap. Eat, eat, eat if their eggs die, then that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. The web shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hand. Their feet... Run to do evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. There is no justice in their going. They have made them crooked paths. Whoever goeth in them shall not know peace. There is justice far from us. Neither doth righteousness overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like a bl- like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places like dead men. We roar like bears and mourn greatly like doves. We look for justice and there is none. Salvation but is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing... And lying against the Lord, and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And justice is turned away backward, and unrighteousness standeth far off, where truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil, maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Interesting. The tragic, tragic nature of sin, especially as it becomes widespread in a culture. And one of the great pains in our culture is the realization that justice is often very elusive. What greater pain in a cultural setting than the lack of justice? The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness sustained him. Aha, a man. It echoes Revelation chapter 5. Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seven seals? The book, the skull that was in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And I wept convulsively, John says, because no man was found in heaven. that was worthy to open the book, that is, to redeem the world. The elder said, hey, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book. Revelation chapter 5. And that's what's really being echoed here. See, there was no man at first. There will be a man in a minute, another verse or two. He says, see, first, no man. There was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation on him and his righteousness sustained. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. It's interesting when you get to Ephesians 6, you remember Paul uses these same terms. Put on the whole armor of God. And if you read Ephesians 6, you, you find these idioms. And most people always teach that, gee, that's Paul was chained to this Roman soldier. And while he's writing Ephesians, he, he took his analogy from looking at this Roman soldier. I'm always interested by that because, you see, most people think Paul was chained to the Roman soldier. Paul didn't see it that way. He felt the Roman soldier was chained to him. It sort of reminds me of Woody Allen's crack that hell is being stuck in an elevator with an insurance salesman. And, and so here... I mean, a Roman soldier may have felt that way because here he is, he's chained to this evangelist. He can't get away. Paul's Every time there's a changing of the guard, you know, every four hours, whatever it is, he's got a new one to witness to. Yeah. But the interesting thing is I don't believe Paul was drawing the analogy from the Roman armor. I think he was drawing from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. Remember the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation on his head. And so he doesn't, Paul doesn't talk about the garments of vengeance, and we're going to find out why Paul doesn't speak of that when we get to chapter 61, because that's the role when Jesus, from the first two verses of chapter 61, declares his mandate for his ministry and opening his ministry in, in the synagogue of Nazareth. He reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, but he stops at a comma and leaves out the day of vengeance of our God, so that he could close the book and say, this day is that fulfilled in your ears. And what's not fulfilled yet, praise God, is his role as the avenger of blood, the day of vengeance, yet future. And that's when is yet about to unfold. So the garments of vengeance is here because it has the whole thing in view, uh, Paul, that up. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy shall come in like a flood and the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against them and the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto those who return from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. When does the Redeemer come to Zion? After the church is out of here. And that's Acts 15, if you want to dig into that. As for, for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth... And forever. The Redeemer is coming to Zion, verse 20. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. With whom? With Israel. Saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth. Really. Nor out of the mouth of thy seed. Nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord. From henceforth even for a thousand years. Is that what he says? No. Forever. How long does the Lord reign? The throne of David? For a thousand years? No, that's how long Satan's bound. How long does he reign? Remember, handle. Forever and ever. Right on, you got it. Praise God. Okay, we've sort of taken some liberties here, moving pretty fast, but I think it's pretty straightforward. But I notice verse 17's relationship to Ephesians 6. Next time, of course, we'll get into a couple of these. And what you might do in preparation for Isaiah 61, the first two verses, you'll want to read Luke 4. Luke 4. I want you to think about, here's Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he gives them a sermon that causes them to th- try to throw him off a cliff. And I want you to study the sermon carefully and figure out why were they so upset. See, you and I as Gentiles missed the point. Remember, they're, they're Jewish. And he met, he, Jesus used two examples. A widow that was provided for and a leper that was cleansed. And they were so angry about the selection of the, that he chose that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Read Luke 4 and try to figure out why were they so upset about his particular sermon at Nazareth. It's very instructive. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The remaining chapters of Isaiah is going to get more and more relevant to you and I because he's more and more going to echo like the book of Revelation. It's going to be clearer and clearer that he's talking about things that affect you and I. We've been through some portions here that are really, you know, exhortative, if you will. But uh, it's interesting that Isaiah is emphasizing God is once again going to do, deal through Israel. And as we watch God move and prepare to deal through Israel, it tells us something. It tells us that this peculiar period that Paul talks about, that we call so glibly the church, is about finished, about completed. It's about to completed its mission, to call out a people for the Gentiles. Then will I again set up the tabernacle of David, James quotes in Acts 15. That's all starting to happen. That's all starting to happen. Magog is ready to execute Ezekiel 38. Europe is emerging as a superstate, fulfilling Daniel 2 and 7. Babylon is being rebuilt on the banks of the Euphrates by Saddam Hussein, preparing the fulfillment of Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15, and 51. Israel's is back in the land, Jerusalem's back in the control, and they're starting to rebuild their temple. Isn't that interesting? Boy, what does this all mean for all of us? Look around, it's all happening. All those things that we talked about and and uh, studied for 20 years or more are unfolding before our very eyes exactly as the Bible says.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.